Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Coming up on the show today, Tara Isabella Burton, author of the new book, Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. Uh, Tara, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And congratulations on the new book. So how do we create our identities? Too much and too often. So I actually don't think that we do is the long answer. But I think that increasingly we think that we can. Which is to say, uh, self-made is the story of two cultural figures that are not often uh, conceived together. The, the dandy, the sort of quasi-celebrity who creates their life as art. The entrepreneur who uh, kind of comes from nothing, but through bootstrapping and hard work transforms their economic uh, and social situation. And I believe that these are not just two sides of the same coin, uh, but two iterations of this, this sort of Janus face of this wider phenomenon, which is a, a fundamental, and I would argue theological change in how we, at least in the early modern to modern to contemporary Western world, see ourselves as the architects and the creators of our own lives, imagining ourselves fundamentally as kind of gods of our, of our own universe, such that the choices we make, uh, and all the more importantly, the desires we have are constitutive of reality, rather than merely elements of a personality that has, has to fit itself to external reality. Yeah, I mean, you use the word theology there, as you, as you say right at the very beginning of the book, in, in some ways, uh, this is a story about how we became gods. And I, I should point out that you say that very tongue in cheek, but you use this um, fantastic advert for a fitness brand that, you know, we should make, uh, make yourself a gift to the world. That, so there's this sense of self-worship, doing the world a favor. As you say in that introduction, it's, it's all hail Narcissus. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think there was a time where I wanted to put uh, the, the subtitle of the book as How We Became Gods, uh, rather less descriptive, I think, than the, than the current title, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashian. But I'm interested not just in the kind of narcissistic element of self-creation, although I think what's the most obvious and kind of the easiest to point to, um, but rather this idea that Whatever it is about us, and I think the the very uncertainty of that whatever uh, causes it to take many forms and be described in different ways throughout the history that I'm covering, that there is something about who we are that gives us the godlike power to not just shape our destinies or decide what, what kind of lives we want in a purely material way, but rather to create reality itself. That reality is downstream of perception and more than that, downstream of our desires. It's an economic story. It's a cultural story. It's a theological story altogether. But ultimately, I think the, the story of the self-made person uh, as a cultural phenomenon rather than a sort of individual instantiation of, of social mobility is about the idea that the closest thing there is to divinity in this universe is human desire, that it is the engine on which we humans run, but also on, on which sort of reality as a whole runs, that 
nature, that the world around us, and even the social imaginary, all of these are something between uncultivated land and a blank canvas. They exist and have meaning only because of how we make and shape it. And you find that this, this idea of kind of artistry and, and creating life as art to be something that you find not just, for example, in the stories of self-proclaimed or proclaimed by other dandies, such as Beau Brummel or Oscar Wilde, who famously said that he put his talent into his work and his genius into his life, but also um, much more broadly, I, I think even of Mussolini, uh, who, who I write about in the book in the chapter on Denunzio and fascism, uh, talks about kind of the, the political life, the fascist political life about being the artist who shapes the clay of the masses. There is some sense that artistic creation of oneself and of others is the kind of thing that makes us human. It's, it's the most elevated, most divine part of ourselves. And of course, that analogy only makes sense in a world, in a dominant worldview, that there is no transcendent external authority to set, create, form meaning, uh, form purpose, or, or form association. There's just human desire and raw material. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those fascinating things about what a self-creator actually is. And one vital assumption uh, it seems to me, is that we are who we want to be, that somehow, as as you explain, this is the the honest part of ourselves, uh, and that somehow the circumstances in which we find ourselves are peripheral if they contradict what we perceive to be that self-reality. Absolutely. And I think that there's this sort of idea that we are truly who we want to be is particularly interesting to me because it it holds together these two seemingly contradictory parts of the narrative of the self-maker as sort of understood in earlier history of this concept, which is to say, in my book, I talk about the difference between the American and the European or the democratic and aristocratic models of self-creation. The idea that either the self-creator, the person who leapfrogs the social order, has some kind of innate specialness, some kind of God-given genius that makes them a kind of aristocrat of the soul or aristocrat of style, such that they have this kind of power that sets them apart from others. The other narrative, uh, seemingly more liberatory, is this sort of more traditional American model that you could just work your way up. And if you work your way uh, with enough grit and elbow grease, you will attain a certain measure of success. Uh, more democratic in theory, more likely, of course, to ascribe moral blame to those who fail or are, are perceived to have failed. But these two concepts end up kind of fusing and coming together in this idea that the innateness and the hard work side both come out of a conception of the self as self-cultivating authentically. So you are who you really are, but the way that you show that you are the person you want to be is through manifesting your desire to be that person. So there's a constant kind of tension between artificiality and authenticity that get resolved in this vision of if you are who you want to be, your authentic self is is made manifest through a self-expression that might otherwise seem artificial because the thing that makes it authentic is, in fact, desire. I always like to quote here uh, one of uh, Andy Warhol's contemporaries talking about life 
uh, in Warhol Circle who said, you know, if you just wanted to be a punk rock star, you just said you were. You didn't have to play an instrument. You didn't have to sing. You could just say you were and you were. And obviously that's a extreme example from a rather extreme personality. But I think that this idea of self-proclamation of deciding being constitutive of who we are is something that is distinctly modern and even more so uh, distinctly contemporary for the post-internet age where the kind of limitations on such self-definition, geography, uh, embodiment are, are less pronounced. And that fits so well with one of the, uh, the heroes of your book who you quoted at one stage, Oscar Wilde, uh, who says, give a man a mask and he will tell you the truth. I mean, that, that seems to get to one of the essential truths, actually, that you identify right there in the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Oscar Wilde uh, really gets at something here, which is that there is something, uh, particularly in the contemporary post-internet world, about uh, the choice to display ourselves that is held to be revelatory of who we really are, especially given that who we really are is increasingly not understood as socially determined or relationally determined. Other people are what stop you from being your authentic self. They're the people who, you know, re repress you or hold you back or judge you. Um, I think of uh, Montaigne, uh, Michel de Montaigne, the, the French humanist and essayist of the late 16th century, who, who kind of rhapsodizes about the idea of being naked. Uh, he's being playful, of course, and silly. Uh, but he you know, always says, you know, why do people wear clothes? Why can I not wear clothes? Society, in this kind of analogy, is you, you are putting things on to obscure the reality of who you really are. And, I mean, you make it clear that this idea of self-creation very clearly goes hand in hand with the decline of religion, you know, even in the United States, which comparatively is, is still a, a relatively religious country. But there is no doubt that there is this shift to a secular age. Uh, and you have a, a, a great phrase for this, that you talk about the numinous force of our own desires. Tell us what you mean by that. So... I think that there's, and I, I've written about this in, in my first nonfiction book, Strange Rights, a misconception that we are in a secular age or, or a secular world. It is certainly true that we are in an era where, uh, to unprecedented degrees, more people identify uh, themselves on surveys as religiously unaffiliated. But it appears to me, both uh, in terms of the data available to us, but also anecdotally, that we are not in a secular world so much as a world where enchantment is uh, more diffuse and less defined by institutions. And in particular, and this sort of ultimately is the argument of both of my nonfiction books, towards the divinization of the self. And I think that what we see in the story traced by self-made is that we do move from, again, being a bit reductionist as all uh, historical generalizations are, a world that is understood to have order and meaning including in its social imaginary, because God has formed it, where the weight of it, the story of it, the purpose of it is outside of our own individual consciousness and awareness to a world where you might call it enchanted nihilism, where the language and rhetoric is not uh, emptiness and nothingness. The language and rhetoric is some kind of... Uh, magic or enchantment or sacredness, but where the driver of that sacredness 
is energy or uh, power or currents or, as you might say in modern parlance, vibes that the that can be accessed through emotional states, affective states, individual desires. Um, something that's really interesting and perhaps the biggest surprise in the, for me in the research of this book was, uh, you know, the, the sort of enlightenment move I perhaps had had guessed uh, how it would go, which is to say anti-clericalism, a rise of certain kinds of secularism, a suspicion of uh, the divine right of kings so far, so far, so obvious. Um, but in the 19th century, both in Europe and America, which have, you know, slightly different stories of self-making, we see a rise of interest in kind of spiritual or spiritualized notions of the self, of energy, of power, um, some mysticism that even goes all the way into what we might now call occultism. Uh, as, but in each case, the kind of skeleton of the story is the same. It's an interest in looking inward, focusing on the self, focusing on the personal power and potential. But you you use the example of the Enlightenment there, and you know I immediately start thinking of Catholic writers. I mean, Patrick Deneen would be a good example. You've kind of said that the kind of nihilism that you've spoken about, the narcissism that you've spoken about, um, the the decline perhaps in organized religion, in some ways he would see this as being part of the failure of the whole Enlightenment project. Where do you fit into that kind of perspective? Because there's, there's no doubt that in the book you're going in both directions, it seems to me, that you're urging us just as you did there to say, look, this is still a religious society. But on the other hand, there are elements of agreement with uh, writers like Deneen in, in what you're saying. So I, I like to uh, joke that as an Episcopalian, I'm sort of committed to being middle of the road. I absolutely do think that there, which is to say I've read Why Liberalism Failed and uh, very much appreciate it as diagnosing certain elements of what I see uh, as cultural problems that do need diagnosing. But what I am resistant, particularly as it were from a Christian perspective, uh, what I'm resistant to doing is creating a narrative of tragic decline from the good old days of, of the medieval world where we all knew our places king to peasant to the crazy woke world of today or what have you. And I, and I don't mean to be reductionist um, to, to the sort of more pessimistic view, but what, what I think is um, important to preserve is not just the idea of self-making has liberatory potential for particular marginalized groups, which I think is something we do, of course, have to keep in mind. You know, think of Frederick Douglass, whose dream of an America, especially Douglas, a man born into slavery, who nevertheless sees in the promise of America somewhere where no matter uh, your birth, no matter your familial origin, you can become a gentleman, as it were, where you could you can make something of your life. So I think that's one part of it and one that we absolutely need to hold on to. But I think another perhaps less obvious part of it is that there is in the effort even if the foppish dandies, as much as the uh, more, more perhaps serious prophets of freedom like, like Frederick Douglass, a real attempt to contend with something that is true, which is that there is something about who we are as human beings that is not reducible to or purely identifiable with the biographical details of our own life. 
that furthermore, this irreducibility uh, is not obvious to others without being communicated. And that there is something about who we are as human beings that involves our hunger to communicate that. Now, I think one can be a perfectly orthodox Christian uh, and, and see this in the light of the Imago Dei, the idea that we human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. We can see within the liberal tradition, deep, deep Christian humanism. And I think I would describe myself certainly as a Christian humanist. But what I want to do in writing self-made is not to tell a story of how we have lost our sense of self as purely relational in favor of this kind of narcissism, but rather to see contemporary cultural narcissism as a kind of perversion of something that is actually good or necessary, which is a recognition that there is an ineffable dignity to each human person. And that part of the kind of wonderful weirdness of humanity is that each of us does have that distinction. And I think that the, the danger that I want to caution against in this book is not to say it's bad or it's dangerous that we focus too much on authenticity or what have you, but rather that locating that distinctiveness purely in our psychologically felt desires uh, is a mistake, not least because I think most human beings, and I think there's a, there's a wealth of philosophical literature on this, are very bad at knowing what we want. We don't know ourselves. We don't know our feelings. We don't know what we desire uh, at all. And so I'm wary of the kind of modern version that equates desire with distinctiveness, even as I think that any good political theology has to account for that distinctiveness. And I'm very prepared to hear the kind of best case version of, let's say, someone who is much more conservative than I am, how a much more conservative society than I perhaps would want to live in might preserve that distinctness. Is it about the way in which we see ourselves? I mean, you mentioned uh, Frederick Douglass there, who you know, did believe that humans were perfectible, that language of perfection is something which is suffused in the life of the United States, a more perfect union and, and so on, in contrast, perhaps, to that more traditional view that man is fallen, that there's not very much that can be done about that other than through uh, traditional religion and so on. I, I was very struck when I was reading the book that the Renaissance figures squared that circle because they just simply said that these people who emerged that it was genius and that that genius came from God. And that was the, the moment, it seems to me, in the kind of the human story where the two things actually came together in a way that from their worldview seemed entirely coherent. Absolutely. There's this whole sort of subgenre of Renaissance uh, writings about the genius. Uh, I call them God's bastards in my book. The idea that the true parent of the genius is not his legal father, but God or nature or sort of divinity that this person is marked out from birth as being special. I'm not sure how you would square that with sort of orthodox Christianity. And I think a lot of the sort of neoplatonic slash Christian slash general pagan adjacent rhetoric of the Renaissance is... um not to necessarily be taken literally, theologically speaking. But I think that if one were to think theologically about the self, um, I think we sort of have to contend with um, 
the very contradiction of human life being both our animal mortal and our creative yet not omniscient natures. I mean, again, as an Episcopalian, I probably tend towards the middle of the road here, but I think that it is certainly possible to hold that there are imperfections, including mortality, encoded into who we are as human beings that mean we, we don't get to be God, but at the same time, that there are transcendent values, including virtues, that we ought to be tending toward. That self-cultivation, self-examination, at their best, ought to be a kind of ongoing process. Not, And I think the act of self-cultivation and the expectation of perfection are, are very different things. And this is why I think if I were to pick a kind of best version of self-making, it's that of the sort of American liberal tradition, the early American liberal tradition before self-making became so closely tied up uh, with cultural ideas of entrepreneurship and money, where the the rough narrative basically went, how can you expect us uh, to govern ourselves politically if we cannot govern ourselves personally? Where uh, figures like, you know, so much of even Benjamin Franklin's writings are deeply tied up with the idea of self-making as a kind of virtue ethic. And this is sort of tied up with older virtue ethics traditions, that we have certain ways of practicing self-control, self-discipline, of uh, putting restrictions on our baser desires, of discerning what desires are base and which good. And that the act of doing that trains us to better be able to live together politically. And one of the most interesting and I think unexpected examples of this that you find is actually in some of Frederick Douglass's writings on temperance. Now, as a reader uh, coming to this, I did not expect to find Frederick Douglass arguing that slavery in America might well uh, be abolished if we could only get slave owners to stop drinking. But in one of his essays on temperance, he, he says just that, this idea that People who cannot control themselves, who are in, I think the language is striking, slavery to or bondage to alcoholism, such that they are not able to uh, think virtuously about their own lives because alcohol has made them wickeder. Um, if we could but get them to stop drinking, if we could get them to think clearly. Self-mastery. Exactly. That, even the self-mastery of people who understood themselves as owners of other human beings, uh, their self-mastery would naturally result in the freedom of those they enslaved. And I think that that's very, very striking rhetoric, not least because it, it demonstrates that even someone born into shadow slavery, but educated and indeed self-taught into so many of these idealistic visions of what self-mastery and self-creation could look like had a vision of America as an ultimately moral community. And that's the kind of self-making that I think looks a little bit different from grind sigma mindset or grind set or whatever the kind of entirely individualistic self-focused visions of self-mastery are today, which don't have a political component, which do not have you might even call a component of virtue, precisely because what is to be desired is uh, personal self-betterment or personal wealth rather than membership in a sustaining and self-sustaining community. 
You uh, used the phrase earlier, living together politically. Um, a lot of the issues that are currently dividing the United States culturally are about these, these kinds of questions about uh, self-creation, how you identify and so on in all kinds of different facets of your life. Where do you think that we are politically and how does that tie in with the broader ideas in the book? So I think, and I'm speaking specifically about America, I don't dare opine more broadly. I think we are in a fantastically individualistic society. I think that the quintessential American narratives of self-improvement and self-transcendence and hard work are habitually deployed um, to reduce the kind of social safety net that would offer help to those who need it. And a lot of the arguments used today are, are very much echoes of the arguments you would hear in, in the Gilded Age that to, to help certain people will stop them from, you know, positive thinking their way to wealth and power. But I think that's only part of uh, our political state. And perhaps that's the more obvious answer to your question. I think a less obvious uh, element that this kind of individuality has subsumed American political life is, I think, that very few of us are primed, culturally speaking, to think about life as something that ought to be lived for others and in community. Whereas I think I could, could certainly uh, ascribe a political valence on the left-right spectrum to the former, which is to say, I do think that the American right is rather less conducive to certain social services uh, and spending than the American left. This, I think, is a more bipartisan phenomenon, which is the sense of we have to live our best selves. We have to focus on our own feelings, our own internally felt sensations are authoritative both for what is going on and for who we should be. Um, that there is less of a sense for those of us who breathe the cultural miasma in which we live. Um, fewer and fewer of us, I think, are inculcated with a sense of duty. It sounds like a really sort of cringily obsolete word, but maybe precisely the fact that it sounds so cringily obsolete uh, can tell us something. That our own internally felt experiences are more authoritative than external sources of meaning and value. Now, one could say quite fairly that plenty of the institutions that have claimed to be arbiters of uh, external morality, value, and meaning, various ecclesiastical institutions, to say nothing of political, scientific, journalistic, have squandered, in my view, public trust. I think it's a lot more difficult to have faith in a transcendent authority when, let's say, there's a sex abuse scandal in your church or there's a corruption scandal in your, your hometown or what have you. Um, but I don't think we're all just like randomly became narcissists out of nowhere. I think that this is a story about the loss of public trust as much as it is about anything else. And actually, right at the end of the book, uh, you do emphasize the importance of the continuities kind of from generation to generation that history, custom, circumstance, these things do actually matter. Absolutely. I don't think they're the totality of what matters, but they do matter. I think that our communities matter and who we are in community mattered. Uh, I was asked during a book event last month, what's the best antidote to this kind of self-making? And my answer was friendship. Um, it is 
It's one thing to perform yourself to an internet audience, but you cannot perform yourself or create yourself or create your identity when you're in dialogue with someone who sees you regularly, who perceives changes in you, who sees the parts of you yourself that you don't actively choose to present. And I think the kind of human relationships, be it friendship, be it the relationship of, of neighbors, the more we have these, the less our lives become governed by self-presentation. Because I think very few people are good enough at, at self-presentation to be able to uh, fool their closest friends or their siblings. So the book is Self-Made, Creating Our Identities from Da Vinci to the Kardashians. It's written by my guest, Tara Isabella Burton, and it's published by Public Affairs. But for now, Tara, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Laura Silverman. Bookstack is off for the summer, so do join us again after Labor Day. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying have a great summer.